You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, it's great to see you. First Peter is where we are, so if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bible there. If you need a Bible, underneath your seat, you should be able to find one. Um, underneath every three or four seats, there's one there for you. And so if you need one, make sure you grab that. It would be, it'd really serve you to have that in front of you today, so make sure you, um, you do that. First Peter. Okay, so we're kind of on the downhill slide. So I think in light of that, it would be good to remind you of, of one of the reasons, and really the primary reason we chose to preach through the book of First Peter. Um, the, the primary reason why we did that, really, um, this, this passage cuts to the core of it that we're going to be in this morning. It's because that First Peter deals so much with suffering. Um, if, if you just start reading the, the book, you, you can't miss this. The context that Peter is writing into is a group of people who are persecuted. Um, they're, they're suffering saints. They are Christians that are, that, that are in the crucible of, of suffering and affliction. This is the context of, of the letter. And so one of the ways I think would be good to look at First Peter is essentially what he is doing is he's writing in to this persecuted people and he's offering and imparting great hope to them in the midst of that. And so in that way, one of the things that we have prayed this letter would do as we have, have studied through it is that it would be a means that God would use to impart great hope to you in the midst of suffering. Okay, now as a pastor, and I've said this on a variety of occasions, but as a pastor, um, you know, I, I, I love my job. I would have never expected God to have called me into this or moved me into this, but um, I, I love that he has. And I have this unique privilege as a pastor to spend some of the most celebratory moments that people have with them. So last night, and I said this all wrong in the first service, I said I married my cousin. <laughs> I didn't actually, I've like performed the wedding ceremony, my cousin, right? And so somebody asked me if I was from like southeastern Oklahoma, right next to Arkansas. But. <laughs> so I, I got the moment though of just this sweet opportunity to get to stand before my cousin and uh, um, her, you know, soon to be husband and to, to be able to, to marry them off last night. And so I get the, the opportunities to, to sit with people and celebrate with people in the midst of just some of the brightest moments of their life. But I know the opposite of that is also true, um, that I have this unique privilege to get to sit with people around that table when some of the most just dark and take your breath away moments that they're going to experience. And so I know that part of my job as a pastor is to make sure that you're prepared for that table. That the part of my job is to make sure you're prepared for the pain that is sure to come for all of us. That you have actually thought through suffering and have an adequate theology of suffering before you taste it. Okay, because here's what I know about for you. And this is why it's important for you that we study through a book like 1 Peter. Is suffering has this unique ability. It's kind of like a fork in the road. Every time you suffer, it's a fork in the road. And, and suffering is going to pull you down one of two paths. And, and so maybe you could think of path one like this. It is the pathway of bitterness and unbelief. That suffering has this unique ability to draw and pull you down that path of, of looking at God and your trust in the goodness of God being severed. And, and you've lost trust. So it's real natural for people in the midst of suffering to look at God and to have this thing swell up in them of, God, you have left me here. Like, if you love me, you would not be letting this happen. And, and so in that way, suffering, um, it, it's this great tempter to pull you down the pathway of, of unbelief. And so if you want proof of that, just read the Bible. And so um, do you remember the story of Job? Um, so, I mean, could a guy have a worse day? 
His family, basically his, all of his sons and daughters die. He loses his business. Boils have broken out all over his body. And do you remember what his wife says? Curse God and die, you fool. Now see, that, that's, that's, what, that's what suffering can do to you. It can, it can pull you down the pathway where, where Job's wife went. Why don't we just curse God and die? Because it's not worth this. Right? Do you see that? Um, do you remember the story of Naomi and Ruth? Um, Naomi loses her husband and buries her two sons. And just in a moment of frustration, as she kind of spirals down into despair, do you remember what she said? Don't call me Naomi anymore. It's the Hebrew word for pleasant. From now on, call me Mara, the Hebrew word for bitter. Do you see that? See, this is, this is what suffering can do to you. It's this powerful tempter to seduce you and to lure you down this pathway of unbelief and of bitterness toward God. Okay, now I want you to listen to D.A. Carson as he addresses one of the primary reasons that many Christians are seduced down this path. Okay, listen to what he says here. It'll be on the screen for you. He says, one of the major causes of devastating grief and confusion among Christians is that our expectations are false. We do not give the subject of evil and suffering the thought it deserves until we ourselves are confronted with tragedy. Do you see the problem there? We don't think about suffering until we taste it. And once you taste it, it's very difficult to develop that theology while you're walking in it. He goes on to say this. If by that point... Our beliefs, not well thought out, but deeply ingrained. And let that be a warning for you. All of us in the room are theologians. Most of us aren't very good ones. We're all theolo- we all have things that we believe, and for most of us, those are deeply ingrained in us. Okay, so, so listen to what he says. If by that point, our beliefs, not well thought out, but deeply ingrained, if those beliefs are largely out of step with the God who has disclosed himself in the Bible and supremely in Jesus, then the pain from personal tragedy may be multiplied many times over as we begin to question the very foundations of our faith. Do you see what he's saying here? That, that if you wait to develop your theology of suffering until you taste it, it could be devastating for you. Because chances are, you already have theology of it, but chances are it's not very good theology. And bad theology can have the, the opportunity in the midst of suffering to multiply your pain and the tragedy of it many times over. Okay, so, so you see this one pathway. It's a fork in the road, suffering. It can pull you down this pathway of bitterness and unbelief. But... Suffering can also function as this fork in the road that renews and deepens your intimacy, your hope in, and your joy in, and your confidence in God. See, suffering doesn't have to sever the root of confidence in the goodness of God for you. It doesn't have to do that. It can actually deepen it. Like, this is the strange thing. When you start reading the stories of the Bible, the strange things is to look at how often you see suffering actually deepen people's faith. How often you see that. In the midst of great pain in their life, you see also mixed in with that great joy at a deepened relationship with God. So let me just give you some examples of this. Acts 5, 41. Do you remember this moment in Acts where Peter and some of the apostles have been arrested? They've been beaten. Their lives have been threatened, and then they just got released. And you remember what they say in Acts 5, 41? As they're leaving the council that just beaten them and told them not to speak anymore about Jesus, they said that they were rejoicing because um, they were found worthy to suffer for Jesus. Isn't that ironic? They just got beaten, their life threatened, and they're rejoicing. 
And so you see this all throughout the New Testament, though. Take Paul as a for instance. I don't know many people that have it as rough as Paul did. Okay, so if you read in um, 1 Corinthians, you're going to see that this guy was shipwrecked. He, he was beaten. He was stoned three times and left for dead. Okay, these guys were not JV stone throwers. Okay, they don't just leave people for dead that aren't dead. They leave people for dead who are dead. And they're pretty good at knowing the difference between those two. Three times he was stoned to the point of them saying, okay, he's done. You don't have to throw another one. We've, we, the job is done here. Right? Three times. So you've got a guy in the midst of incredible suffering. You know what Colossians one twenty four says? This is Paul speaking. Now I rejoice in my suffering. Isn't that something? Hebrews 10, um, that the writer of Hebrews is trying to encourage his audience, the, the people who he's writing to, and he's encouraging them by pointing out uh, some of their actions, um, how they've endured suffering. And do you remember what he says in, 10, in 10.34? He looks at them and says, I want you to see how you've responded to suffering, that you have joyfully allowed the plundering of your property. They just saw their house go up in flames, and there's something in them smiling about that. There's something in them that can actually rejoice and be joyful in the midst of that. Isn't that something to see that? And maybe this will be a good metaphor and just a good picture of how this plays out for you. In Acts 16, Paul and Silas find themselves in prison. They are in prison because they are following Jesus. And do you remember what they're doing in the middle of that prison? Do you remember that in Acts 16? They're singing. Thrown in prison... And they're singing hymns to God. This is this paradox that you see all throughout the Bible. Is that these people in the midst of incredible suffering are actually able to sing because they're a Christian. Do you hear that? That they're actually able to sing in the midst of their suffering. Okay, now this is going to walk us in right to where Peter is going with us this morning. So 1 Peter 4, starting in verse 12. Let me read this passage to you again. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Verse 13, listen to this. Command, but rejoice. Selah, think on that for a second. You're suffering, fiery trials, testing you, and Peter looks at them and says, but I'm commanding you to do something. I'm commanding you to rejoice in the midst of that. But rejoice, he says. Insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their soul to a faithful creator while doing good. Okay, in light of this command to rejoice, here's what I want to allow this passage to do for us. I want to allow it to answer the question, what do we need to know about suffering in order to actually do that? In order to actually be singing in the midst of suffering? In order to actually rejoice in the midst of it? Okay, now, there are other things that you could say about this, right? There's more that we could say about what would be required to actually sing in the midst of suffering, but there's not less. Peter is giving us a theology of suffering in this passage, and he's saying, if 
if you're going to actually do this rejoicing thing, this singing thing in the midst of suffering, there are things you have to know about suffering. You've got to actually develop this, this theology of suffering before you taste it. You need to know some things about this. Okay, so I want to walk you through seven things. Don't worry, it's just going to take about three hours. Seven things that Peter is giving us in this passage to know about suffering, to help us develop a good theology of suffering and of tragedy and of trouble and of trial before you get there, before you taste it. Okay, so seven things. So let's start here. Number one, first thing. Peter says this, suffering is certain. The suffering is certain. Suffering is inescapable. No one in this room is going to make it through your life without the scars of suffering. No one. So so Peter is saying, listen, this is inescapable. It's coming. It is coming for you, not just the person beside you. It's coming for everyone in the room in some way, shape, or form. Okay, this is why in in verse 1 of chapter 4, Peter says, arm yourselves with this way of thinking. Okay, now think about arming yourself. When when you're armed, it doesn't mean that you have a gun in the closet when the burglar breaks in. You're not armed if it's in the closet. You're armed when you have like a holster and you're wearing that thing when the burglar breaks in. See, in the same way, you've got to arm yourselves with this way of thinking. That you can't have a theology of suffering that's sitting on the shelf somewhere. You've actually got to be wearing this so when, when trials break into your life that you're ready for those things. Okay, and you see this in verse 12 too. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. So maybe you could think of it this way. To the degree that you greet suffering, and we could be talking about the everyday sort of garden variety of suffering, or those extraordinary take-your-breath-away moments in our life. So to the degree that, that you greet suffering as strange It's showing you how out of alignment your theology of suffering is. It's showing you how out of alignment you are with the scriptures. How your way of thinking about life in a fallen world, about God, about you, does not square with scripture. Uh, Maybe you could do this for me. Think about your life in 20 years. What does it look like? Life in 20 years. So wherever you are now, fast forward 20 years, what, what does that look like for you? See, for I think virtually everyone in the room, here's what happens when we answer that question. It looks great, doesn't it? I mean, we're on a beach somewhere. Life is great. See, see, our view of 20 years down the road is life has gone well. There are no scars of suffering marking the next 20 years from, for us. Okay, can I just encourage you gently here? Read your Bible. Read it. Not one of those guys went through their lives unscathed and escaping suffering. Not one of them. Okay, think about First Peter here. He is writing to people, and the context is unjust suffering. They are suffering not because they're sinning, but because they're saved. Not because they're faithless, but because they're faithful. But they are people that are actually pursuing God and living a life that would reflect God. And they're suffering. They're going through some extreme suffering, some of them. Do you see, this is why the prosperity gospel is so sickening, because it's telling people, if you'll just love God more, follow God more, have more faith in God, then your life will turn out well. Well, it didn't for them. It didn't for them, right? Okay, think about the story of Job. You know how Job is described in the first two chapters as blameless and upright? He, he fears God and he shuns evil. That's how he's described. He had a really bad day, a couple of them. Are you seeing that? Think about Jesus. This is the sinless son of God. This is God in the flesh. You know how Isaiah 53 describes him? As a man of sorrows. It's a man of suffering. 
He knows what it's like to be mocked. He knows what it's like to be marginalized. He knows what it's like to have a fist smashed into his face. For crying out loud, he was murdered. Are are we seeing that? That, I, I think it would be right for us to assume if Jesus is our is our lead, like if he is setting the pattern for us, that it would be, or the pathway for us, that it would be right to assume that we're going to probably follow in that pathway, right? That, that his pathway is going to be our pattern to some degree. In Hebrews 11, um, it, depending on what kind of a Bible you have, you might see over Hebrews 11, this idea of it being the hall of faith. It, it's really, um, the, the writer of Hebrews is chronicling the power of God working through faith-filled people. And for the first 35 verses in Hebrews 11, it's the stories we want to hear. It's Noah did that and Moses did this. It's all the good stuff. Things are working well for these people. It's going great for these people. But then halfway through verse 35, the story changes. And halfway through 35, you get exposed to this. These are faith-filled people. People following God well. And you see this happening. Some were tortured. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. Sawn into, okay, that's a bad way to go. They're sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Do you you see the picture there? These are people that have great faith in God and they are suffering incredibly. This is John 16 where Jesus is looking at his disciples and he's telling them, listen, as long as you're in this world, you are going to suffer, uh, suffer tribulation. It's just going to happen. It is a fact of life in this fallen world. This is what led Augustine to say this. God had one son on earth without sin. Okay, so you got one son on earth without sin. That's Jesus. But never one son or daughter, ne- never one without suffering. Do, do you, are we following that? He's got one son with, without sin. That's Jesus. But he doesn't have one son or daughter that's ever lived that has escaped suffering. Okay, in the midst of intense suffering that you are bound to go through, grief will not be the thing that kills you. It's it's not going to be. It would be appropriate for deep grief to be there when sin and suffering enter into the equation. Okay, so it's totally appropriate for deep grief to be there. Grief is not going to be the thing that kills you. But you know what can kill you? is to be surprised by it. That's what can kill you. That's what can absolutely devastate you. So can you just hear Peter pastoring you today? Can can you just allow him to do that as he's warning you of what's to come? As he's saying, listen, you need to prepare for this. This shouldn't be strange to you. This shouldn't be inexplicable. You, You shouldn't have the gospel over here and suffering over here and these two not being able to merge together. You shouldn't have it like that. That all the promises that God has given you in the gospel, that they, they can be there and found in the midst of crazy suffering. Listen, for some of us in the room, it's going to be bad. It's going to be breathtakingly bad. And can you just hear Peter today? Can you just allow this to sink in? Don't count that as strange. Your 20-year plan probably ought to ha- have a view of that in it. You probably ought to be thinking in some way, shape, or form about that as you think about the next 20 years. So the first thing he's saying is that, that suffering is certain. But, but he's got more here. Secondly, he's going to tell us that, that suffering sits under the sovereignty of God. That suffering sits under the sovereignty of God. Okay, so this is about to walk us into just some of the mysteries of the providence of God. But Peter is, is saying very clearly that God is sovereign over your suffering. 
And can I just say, I think this is the most important thing. If you're going to know one thing about suffering, I think this is the one thing you need to know and to sit in and to make sure this is clear in your mind and in your heart that God is sovereign over this. See, I think a lot of people want to make excuses for God in the midst of suffering. And can I just say that that I don't think the Bible tries to make any excuses for God. I don't think God wants you to make excuses for God in the midst of your suffering. Now, listen to, go go back to chapter 3. Let me just point out two places in 1 Peter that are going to help show us this. In chapter 3, verse 17, listen to what Peter says. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. Okay, so this is unjust suffering. This is people who are following God and they are suffering. And Peter is saying that can be God's will. That is not, that is not contrary to what God would look at and say, it's my will for this to be happening. Okay, and then you see it in in chapter 4, verse 19. Chapter 4, verse 19, the last verse in our passage there, it says this. Therefore, let those who suffer, this is unjust suffering, let those who suffer according to God's will. Do you see that? Peter is, is real clear here that suffering is under the sovereignty of God. Okay, so now with this, when we start talking about the will of God, um, I want to clarify a couple of things for us. That there's two ways that you can talk about the will of God. All right, so if somebody were to ask you, is suffering, like, is that the will of God? You probably need to to say, well, what do you mean by will of God? Okay, Jonathan Edwards, he was um, probably America's greatest theologian. Here's how he kind of clarified how these two wills of God might work how it would be appropriate um, to say in some sense, no, it's not God's will. In some sense, yes, it is God's will. So he says there's two ways you can think about God's will, that God has the capacity to see the world with two different lenses. Okay, so one lens we'll call the narrow lens. It would be God zoomed up into a situation, into your present suffering, and God would look at that and say, no, that's not my will. No, I don't like that. I I take no delight in sin and suffering. I take no delight in betrayal and murder. I take no delight in suffering in this zoomed up personal sense. But there's also a sense in which God can back out of a situation, and this is kind of the, the, the wide-angle lens, that he can look at all of history combined with sin and suffering and his redemption. And he can take both of those, and he can splatter both of those across the canvas of history. And he can, he can say this, that, that I'm using both of these things. I can ordain both redemption and sin and suffering on this side. I can throw both of those onto the canvas of history. And when I present the canvas to you at the end of history, you will look at that and say, that is a beautiful mosaic that God has produced. That I can actually ordain suffering be, because at the end of history, I will show you that this is going to fit into my higher designs, my higher purposes for something that is actually very beautiful and good. So there's these two lenses. One is a narrow lens where he would say, no, I take no delight in it. But the other is a wide angle lens in which God could say, at the end of history, this is going to be a beautiful thing that I'm going to show you. That I'm actually doing good here, even in the midst of, of ordaining sin and suffering. So, so I used this illustration a few months ago, and I, I'll just allow you to peer into this conversation again. I used a, 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 like a, a hypothetical conversation that Kevin Jones, the guy that leads our worship, that, that Kevin and I could have. His mom, when he was very young, died of breast cancer. And so I want you to picture a moment where Kevin would come up to me and, and ask this question. So are you telling me it's God's will that my mom was cut down by cancer? So he's asking a very difficult question, right? 
So, so he comes and he asks that question. I'll just let you peer into what a conversation might sound like. I, I would respond to him, no, God does not will that, Kevin. But yes, and yes, God does will that. So no in the sense that God takes no delight in cancer. He takes no delight in that suffering. So, so no in that sense, no in the sense that God hates cancer. But yes, in the sense that God could have prevented that cancer, but chose not to. Yes, in the sense that instead of preventing it, he actually directed that cancer for his higher plans and his higher purposes. So no, God hates your mom's cancer, just like God hates betrayal and God hates murder. But yes, just like in Acts 2, it says that the betrayal and murder of of Jesus, God's sinless son, was according to his definite plan and foreknowledge. So so there's a yes and there's a no. There's a no, God hates suffering, but a yes that God actually ordains suffering under his sovereignty and under God's sovereignty, the same suffering that is intended by Satan to decimate and destroy you is actually used by God to build and strengthen you. Do do you see how those two things work together? How, How there's two ways that God can view that suffering? Listen to Wayne Grudem comment on this idea of suffering and sovereignty. He says this, While this may at first seem harsh, for it implies that at times it is God's will that we suffer, upon reflection, no better comfort in suffering can be found than this, that it is God's good and perfect will. For therein lies the knowledge that there is a limit to the suffering, both in its intensity and in its duration a limit set and maintained by the God who is our creator, our savior, our sustainer, and our father. So so if there's one thing that you need to get a hold of, if you're going to actually sing in the midst of suffering, it's this, that any suffering you will ever go through is under the sovereignty of God. That it sits under that. So Peter's got more though. Third thing he's going to tell us is that suffering is designed by God to refine us. So so there is a part of the design of God in suffering that it's used to refine. Okay, so look at verse 12 again. Peter says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Okay, so can you picture this imagery? I, I want you to picture a rock, and inside that rock, there is bound up precious gold, but also in that rock is a million different sorts of impurity. So in that rock, big rock, you've got gold, it's precious, and you've got all of these impurities that are not precious. And so what do you do with that rock? You put it under intense heat, you bring that rock to a boil, and what happens? The gold is proved and the gold is purified. You see that? And in the same way, Peter is saying that that here's what fiery trials do to your faith. They function as this heat that brings your life to a boil so that your faith will be proved and your faith will be purified. Okay, this is what trials do for you. Trials, trouble, tribulation. That they are these fiery things that light up your life and bring it to a boil for your good. At the end of the day, it's for your good. And let me break it down into maybe three ideas here when you're thinking about how suffering refines us. Here would be the first. That suffering shows us what's in us. Suffering shows us what's in us. So I want you to think about what happens at the moment of you becoming a Christian. In that moment, here's what you're saying before God. God, um, I trust you and I treasure you above all things. 
I love you. My allegiance is to you above and before everything else. And in that moment, the Bible says God saves us. And he's really gracious in saving us in that moment because he actually knows that that statement that we just said is not all the way true. That in the, the moment you become a Christian, you're saying, God, I love you. My allegiance is ultimately to you. But here's what God knows. You've got a million other allegiances right beside him. That, that if you picture the rock, that you've got some gold in there, but you've got a lot of impurities wrapped around and that has stuck itself to it. So, so here's what trials do, tribulation do. They are the thing that heats your life up, brings it to a boil, so that you can actually see two things about your life. You, first thing, when, when your life is brought to a boil, you see that, you look, kind of look into the pot that's boiling of your life, you actually see that, wow, there's actually some gold in there. There's actually something good in there. I can actually see some faith in there. So, so it's, it's, your faith is proved in that sense. You can actually look in and see that it's not just some big rock. That there's actually gold inside of that rock. Should be an amazing moment for you. It proves that you're not a hypocrite. It proves that you're for real. See, suffering shows you that. But it also purifies it. See, when your life is brought to a boil, that is the only way all the impurities that are wrapped around your faith actually get separated from your faith. It's the only way for it to happen. Maybe you could say it this way. There is a part of your heart and a part of your faith that you will never see apart from suffering. That can only be revealed by fiery trials. See, you don't know what's in you until it gets squeezed out of you. That's the only way you know it. When it's 75 degrees, everyone loves God. <laughs> 75 degrees, your life's going, well, who doesn't love God? But, but when the day is very dark and very difficult, when it's a storm out, then that's a whole different question. That's what actually proves that you do love him. See, if you're sitting here right now and life's going well for you and you say you love God, I would say back to you, I hope so. I, I hope you do. But you know what? We're not going to know that until your life, like the bottom, falls out under it. That, that's when we're going to know if you're for real. That's when your faith is going to be proved. So in this way, suffering shows us what's in us. It shows us that there's actually something right and good. There's actually some gold in there. But it does more than just showing us that. Okay? It not only shows us what's in us, but it actually shows us the inadequacy of our idols. See, an idol is anything that you're looking to right now for life, for meaning, for identity, for satisfaction, for your significance. That's what idolatry is. It's looking at anything other than God for those things. And here's what suffering does. In this way, suffering is such a mercy for us. Suffering takes all of our allegiances that we have in our life, all of these competing loves, and it brings them to a boil. And do you know what all the things that are not precious, all the impurities, you know what happens to them when your life is brought to a boil? They rise to the surface as dross. They're revealed as something not good, not precious. See, what happens in the midst of suffering is all of your idols. You, you get a front row seat in suffering as you watch all of your idols flame out. As you watch all of your idols be revealed as something that's not dependable, that, that are not trustworthy. See, um, your marriage, your spouse, your, your house, your cars, your possessions, your money, your, all of these things, that kind of your hobbies, all these things that make up your... It's not that any of those things are necessarily bad. But when you're trusting 
in those things for your identity and meaning and significance and satisfaction. Suffering is this great mercy to show you that those things are not trustworthy. That all of those other allegiances under the, the, uh, under the heat of fiery trial are consumed. That they're all fragile. None of those things last. None of those things are ultimately dependable. So, so in this way, suffering is a mercy. Not only showing us who we are, but showing us how inadequate all idols are to, to give us what they have promised us. And, and thirdly, there's one more piece of that that not only shows us us, shows us the inadequacy of our idols, but it shows us how adequate God is for us. See, part of suffering's aim, part of its intent, is to show you how shaky everything else in the world is and how sure God is. See, in um, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 9, uh, Paul is talking, and and he's um, he's just recounted some of his sufferings. And he said that, uh, that he uses this imagery, that he is living under the sentence of death. That's how he describes his life. He's living under the sentence of death. And then he says, you know what God's doing in me as I live under the sentence of death? He is weaning me off of all of my reliance on this world, all of my reliance on shaky things. And he's making me reliant on the one thing that is sure, namely God. That's what he's doing in this suffering. See, and this is what suffering does for you. It shows you the, the, the frailty of all of your idols, and it shows you the surety of God. So in this way, I think this is why Peter would say that in that way, suffering is not like this foe to be run from at all costs and to avoid at all costs, that suffering can actually be a friend to you in this way. And listen, this is not just like biblical guys a couple of thousand years ago who who would say that. This is all the saints of history would agree with this. Let me just give you a couple of illustrations. John Piper, I I think, has probably written most extensively and uh, the best on suffering kind of in our modern era. Here's what he said about this, on how suffering refines us. Now, it can actually be a good in that way. He, He says it like this. It'll be on the screen for you. He says, I've never heard anyone say the really deep lessons of life have come through times of ease and comfort. But I have heard strong saints say that every significant advance that they've made in grasping the depths of God's love and growing deep in him. So all the advances that they've made in that have come through suffering. And we would all agree with that. You look back over your life and you're going to see that your major moments of growth in Christ have come in the midst of very difficult seasons. This is why Charles Spurgeon said that when you, for, for those who dive into the deep sea of affliction, those are the people who bring up the rarest pearls. But it's only in the deep sea of affliction that you get those pearls. You can't get them in prosperity. It won't happen. Suffering's got this unique ability to gift you with these rare pearls. Uh, Piper goes on to say this, Until hardship comes into our life, especially hardship for the sake of Christ and his righteousness, we do not experience the extent and depth of our own faith. Until times get hard, we do not taste and really know if we are fair-weathered Christians. See, if it's 75 and your life is sunny, you don't know if you're fair-weathered or not. Because all you've had is fair weather. Okay, he, he goes on here. If when tribulations come, you persevere with faith, then you come out of that experience with a stronger sense that your faith is real. You are proven. You are not a hypocrite. The tree of trust was bent, but it did not break. Your fidelity and loyalty was put to the test and it passed. The gold of your faith was put into the fire and it came out refined and not consumed. 
See, this is what trouble and trials and tribulation, this is the gift they give you. They show you that you're for real. Uh, Listen to uh, one pastor about 100 years ago. He wrote a book on suffering called uh, God's Light on Dark Clouds. He said this, God's people are never so exalted as when they are brought low, never so enriched as when they are emptied, never so advanced as when they are set back by adversity. Is that not a paradox? Never so advanced until you're set back. He goes on, never so near the crown as when they are under the cross. There are, uh, I love this phrase, there are so many graces that can only be pricked into us by the puncture of suffering. And so many lessons that can only be learned through tears. That when God leaves a Christian without any trials, and is this, is this how you think about trials? If God were to leave a Christian without any trials, he really leaves him to a terrible danger. Do you believe that? And he goes on to explain why. Without any trials, his heart, unplowed by discipline and suffering, will be very apt to run to the terrors of selfishness and worldliness and pride. In a musical instrument, there are some keys that must be touched in order to evoke its fullest melodies. And God is a wonderful organist who knows just what heart chords to strike. See, some graces can only be pricked into you by the puncture of suffering. There are some things that you can only get that way. This is why Luther, Martin Luther, he said that uh, the greatest book in my library is the book of suffering. Because there are some things that you can't learn out of a book. There are some things that you can only learn under affliction, under trials, under trouble. So in this way, see, when, when we say rejoice in suffering, we aren't saying rejoice because you're suffering. Rejoice at that. We're not saying rejoice because you're sick. We're saying rejoice because God in his grace is refining you in the midst of it. Okay, so that's number three. Number four. I told you, just three hours and we're out of here. Okay, number four. Present suffering produces future benefits. And I hope the next couple of minutes will be life-giving to you as you think about this. Okay, look at verse 13. Peter says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Okay, so here's what Peter is saying in this passage. That when you walk the road of Jesus, here's what you can expect. To also share in the reward of Jesus. This is this future orientation, this drumbeat that we have heard throughout the whole book of 1 Peter. When when Peter is saying that you need to have your hope fixed on heaven, fixed on what to come. can, Can I just remind you that we actually believe in eternity? That we actually believe that there will be a day when your experience with God is so great that it will overwhelm and overshadow every great part of suffering, piece of suffering that you've experienced here. That that your experience with joy will be so deep that it will actually make it hard to remember the depth of your suffering now. And we actually believe in that. This is what Peter's saying. But can I take it one step further? This isn't just a future hope that says heaven is awaiting It's it's more than that. When the Bible talks about suffering and the future, here's what it's going to say. That your present suffering now is actually preparing something more for you in heaven. That your suffering now is actually preparing more benefits later. Okay, so so listen to this. This is uh, Paul speaking in 2 Corinthians 4, 17. Jesus says something really similar in the Sermon on the Mount as well. But let me just give you Paul's uh, rendition here. 
He says in 417, 2 Corinthians, for this light and momentary affliction. Now he has just rolled through all of his affliction and I would say none of those are light. But in light of what's to come, Paul's calling them light. He says in light of this momentary affliction or for this light momentary affliction is, and listen to the word he uses, is preparing for you. So this light momentary affliction is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So see, it's not just have hope because the future is going to be good. It's, it's heaven. It's on the horizon. It's, it's saying this, that your present suffering now is actually preparing for you a better heaven. That's what he's teaching. That's actually preparing something more for you. Okay, I'm going to use a... Um, an illustration that's very imperfect, but I hope a little bit helpful for you. Imagine that you're a sports fan and your team is the worst team ever. And they've always been the worst team ever. Okay, we've gotten a taste of that around here, right? And, and so they've always been bad. I mean, they're, they're never good, but your chips are in. You're there. You're buying tickets when they're $3 and no one else is buying them. All right, so, so you are the guy who is always there. You're in the stands all by yourself. You're cheering when no one else is cheering. Th- this is you. And all of a sudden, your team starts to do well. And now people are jumping on the bandwagon left and right. Everybody likes them now. They're doing great and everybody's in. They've all pushed their chips in. And now you find yourself and it's game six of the World Series. It's a bad moment already, right? Game six of the World Series. There's two outs, just another strike, and we've got this thing won. We went from being the worst to we are about to be the best. And you look beside you, and the seat beside you is one of those bandwagon fans. You've been a fan for 20 years. It's game six, one strike away, and you've got fair weather guy, bandwagon guy, who's sitting here beside you. And all of a sudden, the last strike is thrown you win the game. Your team is the champion. Everybody goes crazy. You're celebrating. They're celebrating. And both, I mean, they're both like authentic celebrations. Fairweather guy's really happy. You're really happy. Okay, but can you see in that moment, if you're, if you're the guy that has been through all the pain, all the bad days, how much deeper your joy would be? Now carry that on to heaven. Do you see that? Do you, do you see how sufferings can prepare for you? an eternal way to glory. I can actually prepare something for you that's going to be better. This is how Jonathan Edwards, he dealt with this idea of rewards in heaven. He said, in heaven, we're all going to have a boat. Okay, so in heaven, picture yourself. We've all got a boat. And your boat, my boat, everyone's boat is full of the cargo of joy. So everybody's boat's full. We've got a boat. Everybody's got a boat. The cargo is full. Joy is packed in tight. But here's what suffering and obedience, among other things, does for some in the room. Suffering actually prepares for you a bigger boat. So you can actually carry more of heaven's cargo of joy. See, I I think if you were to ask Peter, how can you say rejoice in the midst of suffering? I think Peter would tell you this. Because here's what I know about every beating that I endure. It's actually creating for me a better future. Now, what if we believe that? What if every time you were mistreated, you thought, you know what? I'm going to endure this graciously and patiently because here's what I know. Every mocking, every time you're marked, every time you suffer for the name of Jesus, it's preparing for you something better in the future. Can you imagine how that would change the way we deal in suffering? Can you imagine the sort of, even in the midst of great suffering, the sort of singing that would produce in us? 
Okay, now we're really about to pick up the pace here. Here's number, uh, here's number five. So present suffering produces these um, future benefits, but it also, present suffering, produces present benefits. Look at verse 14. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Now that seems like a paradox, doesn't it? You're insulted, you are so fortunate. You, this is good for you. Right? You, you see what he's saying? So you're insulted and, and you're blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. When you are faithful to follow God, even in the midst of great cost to yourself, here, here's what Peter is saying. There is a tangible sense of the Spirit of God resting on you. There is a tangible, extraordinary sense of God in your life. Like maybe you could say it this way. That when you go through difficult and dark days of suffering, here, you just need to know this. That there is a part of the heart of God that you will know and experience that you would not know or experience had you not have gone through it. For those in the room who have, who have experienced very difficult things, know this. There is a part that you have experienced of God that for those who have not experienced those things, they have not known of God. This is what Peter's saying, that there's also these present benefits of now knowing God in a fuller, in a brighter, in a bigger way. Okay, here's number six. And this is specifically for the Christian here. Peter's going to say this. Suffering is always less severe. So your present suffering is always less severe than our sin or your sin. Okay, now look at verse 17 and 18. I can't linger here long, but I want to just give you a sense of what's going on here. Verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin in the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God, for those who are apart from Jesus? Verse 18, and if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Okay, first of all, you might underline that word scarcely. I think the translation difficult is maybe a better one. It's, it's not saying, when it says scarcely or difficult, it's not saying that there's like um, uncertainty about the outcome for a Christian. It's not saying that there's uncertainty about, uh, about th- them actually being saved. The future is certain for a Christian. It's saying for a Christian, the road is difficult. So if you go Sermon on the Mount, this is Jesus saying that the gate is narrow and the road behind that gate is very narrow. And that narrow road behind the gate that leads to salvation, that road is lined with a million different difficulties. That's what he's saying, that it's difficult. The way of salvation is difficult. There's suffering that lines that road for a Christian. Now, here's the point Peter is making. If that is true for a Christian, he's saying, can you imagine? A Christian is a son or a daughter of God. So if that's true for a Christian, that the way to salvation is lined with suffering, can you imagine what it will one day be like for an enemy of God as they stand before him? See, this is a sobering couple of verses. And in this, there is encouragement for a Christian and there is a warning for those who don't know Jesus. Here's the encouragement for a Christian. Is that your present suffering now, you can always bank on this. That your present suffering is never as severe as your sin against God. It's always lighter and less severe than your sin against God. Regardless of what you're going through, your suffering now is less than you deserve. You can bank on that. It's a, it's a, it's a fact. It's truth. That your suffering, your present suffering will never be equal to, to your sin against God. I, I love to ask people the question periodically. Or actually, I do it all the time. This is my standard greeting. How are you? It's so vague that I kind of like it. And, uh, and this is why I like it, because you get a sense of how people think about life. See, if they're always in the dumps, if they're always on that side of the thing, you get a sense for what they think they deserve from God. Can I just tell you an answer that's always right to the question of how you're doing? It's this. 
I'm doing better than I deserve. Do you know that you're all, if you're a Christian, you are always doing better than you deserve? And for the rest of eternity, you'll be doing better than you deserve? See, there's encouragement for Christians. Your sin deserves worse than you're getting. So, so in that way, you can rejoice in this, that this is the worst you'll experience. But, but, okay, now there's also this warning for people who don't know Jesus and live apart from Jesus, who have rejected Jesus. That there is this warning that when you stand before God, your suffering is not going to get better. Your, your suffering is going to get worse. So maybe you could think of it this way. If you're a Christian in the room, here's the encouragement. Your suffering now is as close as you will ever get to hell. And here's the warning for people apart from Jesus. Your suffering now is as close as you'll ever get to heaven. And so can I just plead with you for those who have rejected Jesus? You're, you're still kicking the tires. You're, you're still kind of asking questions about this thing. Can I just encourage you and plead with you? You've got one of two options. Either you come under the reign and rule of Jesus and you trust him and treasure him above all things. And in that moment, God saves you and, and applies all of your sin and suffering, applies that to Jesus See, either Jesus takes your sin and suffering that you deserve, either Jesus takes that for you, or you will endure that forever in an eternity apart from God. But those are the only two options. Either Jesus gets your sin, or you get the sin. But that's it. And so can I just encourage you, in light of that, that that this needs to be like at the top of your list of getting figured out here real soon, that if you've been kicking the tires on it, this might be a great day for you to step across the line. Can I just encourage you with that and plead with you? That apart from Jesus, this is the best it ever gets. With Jesus, this is the worst it ever gets. And lastly, and we'll finish with this. Number seven. Verse 19. In your suffering, I just want you to remember this last thing. That God can be trusted in the midst of it. That God can be trusted in the middle of your suffering. Look at verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their soul to a faithful creator while doing good. Let me just point out um, three things for you. Three words in that passage. And by the way, I think this is one of those, that, that verse, 419, is a verse that you need to have memorized. You need to have tattooed on your forehead. Whatever it takes to remember it, you need to get this verse deep into your heart. Three, three quick words. Um, one, it says creator. This is the only time in the New Testament that the word creator is used to describe God. And I think Peter is helping us see that God is complete and comprehensive in his sovereignty. He is the architect of all things. He controls all things. Nothing flows into your life apart from passing through his hand. That God is sovereign, creator. He is the ultimate ruler of the universe. Okay, so you get that picture. But you see the word faithful? See, he's not just creator. He's also a faithful father to you. He will come through on every promise he has made to you through the gospel. Every promise he's coming through on. He does not overpromise and underdeliver. He comes through on every promise. So, so you can know that he's actually working all things for your eternal good and your eternal benefit. You, you can know that God is for you, not against you. you. You can know that if suffering comes into your life, it is ultimately for your good. You can know all of those things. So he's not just creator. He is also a faithful father. Do you, you see the, the last word there in trust? That when, when a son or daughter of God knows that God is creator, he, he controls all things, and he's a faithful father, you know what the natural response of a son or daughter is? To say, God, I trust you then. I, I'm, I'm giving you this. I would never have chosen this. I would never have planned this into the story of our lives. But God, I know that if you have brought this into us, if you have brought this trial, this tribulation, this loss, this betrayal, this thing into our life, God, God I know that you are working it for our good. So I'm trusting you. Here it is. It's yours. 
Do you know what suffering rises, like the question it rises to the surface in the midst of it is this. Do you really believe that God knows what your soul needs most and is working for it? Do you really believe that? So this is what suffering presents to you, that question. Do you really believe God knows what's best for your soul and is working toward it? He's creator. He's a faithful father. And can I just remind you that he really is working for your good? I told this story, um, we'll be done here. I told this story uh, a couple of weeks ago of Hannah and the infected finger thing. I don't know if you all were, if you were here that day. I'll just give you a quick recounting of the story. She had an infected pinky finger. And I knew that it was, it was looking pretty bad. And so the doctor is moving in. And doctor to me is Band-Aid and some antibiotic ointment. And surely that's going to heal everything. And so um, I grab her hand and she's super protective of it. So as soon as I grab it, she goes crazy. She's crying, kicking, foaming at the mouth. I mean, it's bad. And, uh, and it's this ironic moment as a dad, because you know that to help her, you actually kind of have to hurt her a little bit. And so um, in the midst of her kicking and screaming and everything she's doing, I look at her and I say, Hannah, do you trust your dad? And if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you, you knew that her response back was, no, I don't trust you. Are you crazy? You're killing me here. And so can I just tell you what I pray for Hannah, though? Here's, here's what I hope for Hannah is that as life goes on, that she would grow in her trust of her father that would never hurt her except to help her. That she would grow in that. And can I tell you what I pray for you and us as a church family is that God would grow us in a trust of him that would really believe that if he ever hurts us, it's ultimately to help us. Amen? Let's pray. I'm going to give you just a second just to sit under that and for the Spirit of God to impress upon you and imprint in your heart whatever was helpful and needs to stick with you today. If you're not a Christian in the room, I just want to remind you that there is such a a vivid reminder in this passage that, that I hope is a warning for you. That apart from Jesus, this life and your present suffering is the best you'll ever get. But but with Jesus when you become a part of the family of God, that this is the worst you'll ever see, ever taste, ever experience. And so if if you've not nailed that issue down, see, in this room, there are some of us that think we're Christians and we're not, and there's others of us that we know we're not Christians. But but can I just, can I encourage you to make sure you nail that down solid? And we'll be up here after the service. If, If you want to chat through that, we'd love to serve you in that journey. And for others in the room, I I know that this morning, it's tangible, it's thick, suffering feels really dark right now. I just want to remind you that that God is good in it, that he's faithful, that he's creator in it. You can entrust your soul to him in it. And for others of us, those dark days are on the horizon. We can't even see them yet, but they're on the horizon. They're coming. May this be great prep work for us. So God, in your grace, I pray that that you might visit us today. God, God, when a person stands in the midst of great suffering and they can sing and they can rejoice, that means that your grace has visited them. And God, I pray that you'd do that today, that you'd be preparing us for that. God, I pray that, that we would be planted on what is sure. I name it on you. So God, will you, will you help us? God, I pray that, that you might gift us 
with the sort of view of you and the view of Jesus that would enable us to sing in our suffering. And for those that are tangibly right now walking through the dark days, God, I pray for just a, a, a sense of your presence. That, that right now in this moment, there would be parts of you being known by them that without this, they would never see, never taste, never experience. So God, will you, will you give us a view of the future benefits of suffering? That, that every time that we suffer, we are storing up more joy later. God, so I, I pray for a firm, good, right, biblical theology of this so that when our day comes, we could sing. So God, help us, help us. And it's in your good name that we pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.